Good morning. You guys doing well? Good to have you with us this morning. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 16. We're going to start reading verse 19, Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 19 all the way to verse 31. This is our Doubts and Answers teaching series. We're answering the question, can a loving God send people to hell? Let me start off with a a story that I heard a number of years ago. A Minneapolis couple decided to go to Florida to thaw out during a particularly icy winter. They planned to stay at the same hotel where they uh, spent their honeymoon 20 years earlier. Because of hectic schedules, it was difficult to coordinate their travel plans. So the husband left Minnesota and and flew to Florida on Thursday with his wife flying down the following day. The husband checked into the hotel. There was a computer in his room, so he decided to send an email to his wife. However, he accidentally left out one letter in her email address and without realizing his error, sent the email. Meanwhile, somewhere in Houston, a widow had just returned home from her husband's funeral. He was a minister who, had, who was called home to glory following a heart attack. The widow decided to check her email expecting a message or expecting messages from relatives and friends. After reading the first message, she screamed and fainted. The widow's son rushed into the room, found his mother on the floor, and saw the computer screen, which read, To my loving wife, subject, I've arrived. And then the letter went like this. I know you're surprised to hear from me. They have computers here now, and, they, and you are allowed to send emails to your loved ones. I've just arrived and have been checked in. I see that everything has been prepared for your arrival tomorrow. <laughs> Looking forward to seeing you then. Hope your journey is as uneventful as mine was. P.S. Sure is unbelievably hot down here. So there you go. A little light-hearted humor to kick off a very serious and sobering topic. Um, it's a pretty serious topic we're, we're heading into uh, this morning. And here's what we've been uh, doing uh, throughout this teaching series, is, and, and I think it's a reasonable request, is that I happen to believe that there is enough uh, evidence beyond a reasonable doubt giving validity and veracity to the basic beliefs of Christianity. Uh, thus, the scale that you see on the front of the bulletin, that, that the more you begin to roll up your sleeves, uh, figuratively speaking, speaking, intellectually, and dive in, you're going to see that uh, Christianity is historical, factual, and evidential. And there's plenty, plenty of evidence to tilt the scale in favor uh, beyond a reasonable doubt. And, and we've been also saying that it is inconsistent to require more justification for Christian belief than you do for your own. Everyone has a belief system, and oftentimes people will require more justification for Christianity than their own belief system. So I'm asking you, if you don't believe in Christianity, what do you believe in? And are you putting it to the test? Can it carry the weight uh, intellectually? Uh, Christianity is intellectually sound... And it is also uh, heart-satisfying. So it's head-sound, heart-satisfying. 
need to maintain that balance. Now, here's the question we're looking at here this morning, and it's, it's something that oftentimes people struggle with, and that is uh, the argument against Christianity is a loving God sending people to hell for all eternity seems to be a contradiction. How could a loving God send people to hell? Seems like a contradiction. Now, the doctrine of hell is a topic we can't afford to get wrong. Is there a hell? Is there a heaven? Where, where will we spend eternity? Well, would you say that that's pretty important? But every one of us are headed in one direction or another. All of us are going to die. Where will you spend eternity? That's an important question. I don't know if you've thought about it. We don't often think about it until we have a close brush with death or we lose a loved one. I think it's really important for us to think about this topic, and, uh, and, and it's because the, what are the stakes? The, the stakes are eternity, for all eternity. What's hanging in the balance? People's lives, souls. And um, the ideal of hell, hellfire, and darkness uh, is metaphorical in the New Testament. When it talks about those things, that's metaphorical. And oftentimes when, when I say that or when you hear people want to know, well, what does that mean? And we'll say it's metaphorical. And oftentimes people will say, boy, that's good. And then you need to say metaphorical for something that's much worse. When the Bible uses that language, it's, it's, and metaphors are just a, a glimpse of something that is obviously much worse than what it's describing. I guess who talked about hell more than anybody in the Bible? Anybody want to guess? You can yell it out to me. You got it. So the Lord of love and the author of grace, Jesus spoke about hell more often and in more vivid terms than anyone else in the Bible. Okay, let me, let me bring you up to speed where we've been. So the first week of this series, we talked about the resurrection. I gave you proof of the resurrection that this, this God, this man who claimed to be God, resurrected from the grave. And, uh, and so I gave you evidence there. And then the next week, we talked about the reliability of the scriptures that talk about his resurrection and the life change that it brought to his disciples. And so we looked at that, the reliability of the, of the scriptures that talk about that. And then the, the third week we talked about, well, is Jesus the only way? Well, he is the only way because he said he's the only way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And so he not only said that, but then he validated that with his resurrection, with the life that he lived. So we, we talked about that. And then last weekend, what did we talk about? Anybody remember? We talked about suffering. And uh, what's amazing about the Christian faith is that we don't have some distant deity detached from us in our times of, of suffering. No, he, he came down and got involved in our suffering. And he suffered for us, not that we wouldn't suffer, but that when we suffer, we would suffer well. And so each of those are kind of building this case. And now we come to uh, heaven and hell, and if you believe that Jesus Christ is truly God's son, and, and if he indeed talked about hell more than anybody else, we need to pay attention. We need to take a serious look, and so that's what we're going to do this morning. So would you bow your heads with me? One more time, let's uh, pray before we head into our text, and uh, then we'll unpack this text. Quite an interesting text we have here, here this morning. Father God, your greatest gift to us is and always will be yourself. 
It is why your son, our Savior, died, and it is the only thing that satisfies our heart's deepest desire. May the study of your word through the work of your Holy Spirit uh, change us, console us, and compel us to reach out to the many around us who, who are headed towards eternal separation from you, those that don't know you. Create that urgency within us and also just a heart of gratitude for what you have provided for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. So let's take a look at this text. Interesting text. This is uh, Jesus. It's a parable that Jesus is giving. It's called the rich man and Lazarus, starting at verse 19, chapter 16. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell, or in Hades, being in torment... He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. When Abraham said, but Abraham said, child, Remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. Kind of gives you the idea that once you die, it's over. There's no crossing over. Pretty clear there. There's a lot of things that are probably popping out to you. Let me continue reading. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. He's talking about the Old Testament. Talking about the Torah. Talking about... All of the Old Testament there. And, uh, and he said, and he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Notice Abraham's response. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Three things we're looking at here is that hell is a necessary doctrine. It is a doctrine of uh, historical Christianity, and it is a necessary doctrine for three reasons. To understand our desperate need for God, number one. Number two, to overcome resentment and revenge and to live at peace with others. And then number three, to know how much Jesus loves us and did for us. That's where we're headed. So let's take a look at the very first one, to understand our desperate need for God. Did you notice that there were two primary characters in this study? There was the uh, rich man, and then there was Lazarus. 
And did you also notice that the one had a proper name, Lazarus, and the rich man doesn't? He's just referred to as a rich man. Pretty interesting, and uh, commentators, theologians would say that's purposeful. And if you study Lazarus' name, his name literally means God is my salvation. Pretty interesting insight there. And so why, why the distinction? Why does Lazarus have, have a proper name? And uh, why, does, uh, why does the rich man just refer to a rich man? Because uh, he is a rich man or he is nothing. And in hell, he is nothing on this earth. He was a rich man. That was his identity. Here's another interesting uh, quick truth that I was, I was meditating on in this passage this morning. And I think what this tells us more than anything is that the man who has God and nothing else, Lazarus, doesn't have a whole lot. And I think this is what Jesus is trying to get across to us. So the man who has... The man who has God or Jesus and nothing else has infinitely and eternally more than he who has everything else without God. I mean, if there's any story that you get from this, that's what you would get. You would get that. And so you get it in the, in the contrast between these two, in these two characters. So how does this help us to understand? How does hell help us to understand our desperate need for God? Let me give you three thoughts on that. First of all, sin is building my identity on anything other than Christ. So sin is building my identity. It's more than breaking a list of rules. We break the list of rules because we've built our... Or we might even keep the list of rules, but, but it's, it's misplacing our identity. Uh, sin is building my identity on anything other than Christ. Matthew twenty two thirty seven through 38 gives us the great commandment. Anybody know what the great commandment is? The great commandment is to do what? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. To, to make Him the passion, the priority, the purpose of your existence. In essence, it's saying, hey, make your identity first and foremost in God. Isaiah 59, 2 tells us that sin separates us from God. And in fact, that, that text actually says, and it hides His face from us. Our sin separates and hides the face of God from us. us. Now, you've heard me at, at the end of some of our services when I'll get up and give you a blessing, and I give the High, high priestly blessing, which is found in Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26. You guys know what that is? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. What is that about? Here's what it's about, is that we were meant to live our whole life before the face of God. In other words, it's in him that we find our sense of identity. That's what it means. In fact, it says in Psalm 16, 4, it says, The sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. Those that, that, that make someone or something else the, the most important thing in their life. It will increase your, your sorrows. In fact, that text goes on. It says, uh, the psalmist says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. So he's saying my identity is in Christ. So it gives me stability and strength. And then he finishes up that psalm by saying, in his presence is fullness of joy at his right hand are pleasures evermore. So... So sin is building my identity on anything other than Christ. In other words, all the acceptance, security, and significance you've looked for, your heart longs for, is found in the face of God through Jesus Christ. 
It's in his favor. It's in fellowship with him. In his presence is where you're going to find the greatest satisfaction and pleasure. But we tend to substitute God for a whole lot of other things. And that creates a lot of problems. By the way, there's two different ways that you can avoid God and be your own God. Do you know what they are? You need to know. It's by being irreligious, breaking all the rules, or by being religious, by keeping all the rules. See, the, the Pharisees, they, they kept all the rules, and yet Jesus said, you worship me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. They looked real good on the outside, but, but they were not living their whole life before the face of, of God. Their number one priority was not, was not God, knowing God, walking with God, experiencing God. Their identity was in their moral, virtuous behavior. That's why they tended to feel superior to everybody else. That, by the way, that's a sign that... When, you, when you're condescending and condemning and commanding and you think you have it all together, well, you're, you're substituting yourself for God, really. And so that's one of, one of the ways. There's two ways, breaking all the rules, keeping all the rules. We, we play God by doing that. It's building my identity on anything other than Christ. Here's what happens. Here's the next one. Any identity other than Christ will control me as I seek it, disappoint me if I get it, and devastate me if I lose it. I mean, that's just really, really good psychology right there and spirituality, uh, just being, you know, understanding our connection with God. I mean, if you understand this, any identity other than Christ will control me as I seek it, disappoint me if I get it, and devastate me if I lose it. Did you notice this guy's in torment? In verse uh, 23, it says being in torment. The word actually means, in, in Greek, it means uh, bottom. He's hit rock bottom. He's devastated. He's a rich man or he's nothing and he is nothing. No identity. And then you'll notice also in verse 24, he's in anguish. The word means extreme pain. It's interesting when you study this topic out further. Uh, Jesus says in Matthew 25, 30, he talks about uh, being, these folks being cast out into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping, we know what that is, but gnashing of teeth is almost like, oh, you've ever been in pain and you gnash your teeth or even be angry. Oh, that's what he's talking about there. Matthew 25, 41 and 46, he talks about eternal fire and punishment is the final abode of, of the devil and his angels and human beings who have rejected God. Now, so let's take this idea that I said was metaphor of fire and outer darkness. What does that speak of as it relates to hell? Well, outer darkness means separation from God, eternal separation, and then fire would, would mean disintegration. If you've ever seen a, a log in a fire, what is it doing? It's just disintegrating, and so that's the idea. The idea of hell is isolation, disintegration. Isolated from God and, and your life is just disintegrating. Um, see, when I build my identity on anything other than God, there is a burning fire that is lit within my soul that is all-consuming. See, you got to get this. You hear me talk about it a lot, but counterfeit gods control. They enslave us with guilt if we fail to attain them Think about that. We all have these, these goals in our life that, that they oftentimes become gods. That if I can, if I can just uh, achieve this, if I can accomplish that, if I can acquire these things, but if we don't 
and our sense of identity is tied to those things, it will beat you up the rest of your life with guilt. It controls you. See, see what makes us miserable is, is the things that we, attach our, we overly attach our hearts to, thinking that we can't live without those things. And so it enslaves us with guilt when we fail to attain them. It enslaves us and controls us with anger if someone blocks them from us. Look at your outburst of anger. It's usually coming from something that's really, really important to you and it's being blocked by somebody. It's idolatry is what it is. Now, there's righteous indignation, but for the most part, you know, we don't really express right, righteous indignation. We have a tough time with our anger. It's, it's, it's tough. And then there's, we're, we're enslaved by fear if what we've built our lives on is being threatened or driven us since we, we, we have no meaning. I have to have this. If I have this, I have success in my life. And if it's anything other than Christ, it will... Your life will disintegrate. Now, it might not in this, in this life, but for sure in the life to come, if you have rejected God for the sake of the pursuit of whatever it is, you think you can't live without. By the way, it's interesting. There's this law of diminishing and return with the things of this world. That, uh, and this is what creates this addictive behavior that's within our, uh, within our hearts and within our society, is that it requires more of the substance with giving you less and less satisfaction of that substance. You guys understand what I'm saying when I said that? So, so you know, it's just like if I can just achieve this uh, promotion, well, for a time it's satisfying, but then after a while it loses its satisfaction and it requires more and it creates this drivenness. And so what that does is it isolates us from God and then we kind of isolate ourselves from others, especially when our lives are starting to disintegrate. And which is interesting about that is that this disintegration within our lives, it, it further isolates us. Sin isolates us. I mean, think about Adam and Eve and when they sinned. The last person's face they wanted to see was God. They were hiding from God. They were hiding from one another. And it was because they had so much shame, because they had misplaced their identity in something other than God. And, uh, and then and what do they do? They immediately... They're, they're defensive. They blame shift. Nobody understands me. Everybody's against me. We start building these walls. So, so guilt, anger, fear, drivenness are like fire that destroys us. And so any identity other than Christ will, will control me as I seek it, disappoint me if I get it, and devastate me if I lose it. And then here's the next one. Hell is a freely chosen identity apart from God going on forever and ever. This is how we would really define hell based on this. And so it kind of gives us a little bit of a clue. It helps us to understand our desperate need for God. Now, most people think of hell. When they think of hell, they think of uh, uh, God gives us time, but if we haven't made the right choices by the end of our lives, he cast our cast our souls into hell for all eternity with us kicking and screaming and as the poor souls fall through space, they cry out for mercy, but God says, it's too late. You had your chance. Now you will suffer with a wicked laugh in the background. Ho, 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 ho. That's kind of the mindset that a lot of people have when it comes to hell. And that's not true, actually. Hell is a freely chosen identity apart from God going on forever 
in ever. Note the attitude of the rich man and uh, how he related to Lazarus in God. Did you notice that? Verses 24, 27 through 28, and then 30. Commentators, and maybe you didn't catch this, but as I looked at it, reflected on it a little bit further, commentators have pointed out that this, this is not a, a gesture. When he's responding, he's crying out. It's not a gesture of repentance or even compassion. Compassion towards his brothers. But rather an effort at still ordering Lazarus around. He's not trying to get out of hell, but he's really trying to get Lazarus to get to come to hell with him, to serve him, so to speak. So you can see that in his attitude. He's blame-shifting. Did you notice that? He's saying, hey, listen, I didn't get all the chances that I should have gotten, so make sure my brothers, my brothers get a better chance than I had. Hey, I didn't have the same chance, but can they have a better chance than what I had? So there's a bit of blame-shifting there saying that he didn't have the the chance, he did not have adequate information to avoid hell. So the rich man is deeply in denial, angry at God, unable to admit that it was a just decision, wishing he could be less miserable, but in no way willing to repent or seek the presence of God. Listen to what C.S. Lewis has to say. He's kind of defining for us uh, hell. Hell begins with the grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others. But you are still distinct from it. You could replace that grumbling mood with any number of things. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it. But there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It is not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. So every one of us, we're headed in, we have a trajectory in our lives. We're heading in one direction or the other. Another place, C.S. Lewis says, hell is the greatest monument to human freedom. That's the reason why the, the harshest judgment that God could give to us is found in Romans 1, where he just turns us over to our own wicked, evil passions as our lives continue to spiral down. And in another place, C.S. Lewis says, there are two kinds of people, those who say, thy will be done to God, or those to whom God in the end says, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, it wouldn't be hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. He's obviously talking about the joy that we find in Jesus Christ. And so, hell is a necessary doctrine to understand our desperate need for God. And here's the next one. Hell is a necessary doctrine for us to overcome resentment, revenge, and live at peace with others. Next, fill in the blank. If there is no final judgment, then retaliation is justifiable. What is it that drives uh, retaliation? It's somehow that this person is going to get away with what, with what they've done. Why would we retaliate? And, that's, and so here's, here's one of the arguments that oftentimes people will use towards Christianity. Oh, so you folks, you guys, live, you guys believe in hellfire? Then won't people who believe in hell be hateful and condemning? Well, they shouldn't be. 
there are that, that are, and you kind of wonder if they're really truly headed toward heaven and they understand the grace of God. Obviously, they don't understand the grace of God. But note Abraham's response to the rich man. He doesn't say to him, you pathetic loser. You had opportunity to come to Christ or to commit your life to God, and you didn't do it. You deserve what you've got. He didn't do that. He, he refers to him. He uses the word child. It's almost as if he's heartbroken. He says, child. That's how he refers to him. And by the way, the more you begin to understand eternal separation, eternal celebration, you know the distinctiveness, and you know that everybody on this planet Earth is headed in one direction or the other. In fact, the Bible says that the, the, the way that's headed towards eternal celebration is, is narrow and straight, and very few find it. The other path is very, very many are going that direction. It will break your heart. It will break your heart. And I think that's what we see here. Um, and in fact, Jesus, uh, actually Romans, Paul talked about this in Romans 12, 14 through 21. He said, uh, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And uh, in fact, the attitude that you should have if you understand grace, he said, uh, to overcome evil with good. Do not become like the evil that's being done to you, but overcome evil with good. And that would be the natural response. In fact, that you would even love your enemies because we serve a guy who didn't just love his enemies, he gave his life for his enemies. And so that really should be our attitude and our heart towards those um, that are heading away from God. Uh, So... Hell, the doctrine of hell, helps us to overcome resentment, revenge, and live a life at peace with others. If there's no final uh, judgment, then retaliation is justifiable. But check this next uh, fill in the blank. The more you understand this final judgment, the more you'll pity those who refuse to repent and turn to God. Jesus says something that's really interesting. He's dispatching his disciples. They're going to go out and, and do some evangelizing. And one of the things that he says, it's found in Matthew 10, 28. And by the way, Jesus knew what these guys were headed for. Many of these were going to have their, their limbs torn from their body, persecuted for his namesake. They would have uh, holes drilled into their head and, and hot metal poured into those holes, lead poured into the holes in their head. They would be uh, impelled on, on poles dipped in pitch, lit on fire. They would be thrown to the lions. Jesus understood what they were, where they were headed. And this is what he says. Don't fear those that can destroy the body, but fear the one who can throw both the body and soul into hell. Now, who is he talking about there? Don't answer out loud, but I'm just going to think about it. Who is he talking about there? Most people would say, oh, he's talking about Satan. No, he isn't. He's talking about God. He's talking about God. And this is what he's saying. He's saying, what you guys are going to face is a picnic compared to what you will face to be eternally separated from me. That's a picnic compared to eternal separation from the Father. I mean, he was trying to get a point across. He says, don't fear that. Live for God. Live before the face of God. And in fact, it's interesting, in, in the teaching of Jesus, the ultimate condemnation from the mouth of God is this, depart from me, 
I want you to think about those words. Just let those fall on you, kind of the heavy words. That would be the worst thing possible. If I was created to live before the face of God and for the one that created me, say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. That's heavy. That's heavy. It's interesting. The Bible uh, uses the word judgment. The word judgment means crisis. We get our word crisis from that. You think you've had a crisis? You stand before the judge, the God of the universe, and he says, depart from me for all eternity. That's pretty hardcore. No, to simply be away from God is the worst thing that can happen to us. Now, why is that? Let me kind of help you to walk through this. Why is that? Acts 17.28 tells us that in Him we live, we move, we have our being. Our existence is totally dependent upon God, whether you want to admit it or not, even if you deny God. Guess what? You're still alive. You're still breathing. You function because uh, there's a God. He keeps you, keeps you going. James 1.17 says that every good and perfect gift comes from God. So here's the interesting thing is that people who reject God can maintain the illusion that life is good without him because in his kindness, in God's kindness, he hasn't withdrawn all of his good gifts. It's called common grace. In fact, I gave you some verses there. You can look at that. But one of these days, common grace will be over if you didn't make a commitment to him. Common grace is meant to turn your heart toward God so that you can receive saving grace. God is being kind to you. He loves you because it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. And yet, the worst possible thing, if if God is the source of life and love and liberty, and for him to say, depart from me, outer darkness, you can see why it's described as outer darkness, and it's also described as fire, this disintegration. Heaven and hell, oftentimes people say, why doesn't God do something about the evil? He has. He is. He will. Heaven and hell are God's two eternal solutions to the problem of evil. Here's the next one. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Uh, that's, that's Hebrews 10.31. There's another verse. You might want to circle this in your notes. It's, this has always been a real frightening verse for me as a, as a believer. It's Matthew 7.23. And in Matthew 7.23, there's a group of people. It's towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And there's a bunch of people that say, uh, in fact, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, so he's talking about Judgment Day, the biggest crisis that we'll ever face apart from God... And on that day, uh, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Oh, these are people that are, that are among us. They're hanging out with us. They're doing all kinds of great things for God. And he says, I don't even know you. It's frightening. It's crazy. People struggle with this idea that, oh, God, God can't be an angry God. How can God be an angry God? Why, how can you have, how can you justify, you know, eternal 
uh, separation from God. Anger is an irreducible part of God's love. In fact, to really love someone, there's going to be anger. It is never loving to let someone hurt hurt themselves, others, or you. Our daughter, Natty, Natty girl, when she was a little little tiny girl on the little Hot Wheel, I guess it wasn't a Hot Wheel, it was the Big Wheel. You guys remember the Big Wheels? Do they still have those? And so she would ride it out in the middle of the street. And we had lived in kind of almost like a cul-de-sac, but it, was, it wasn't a cul-de-sac, it was a corner. And people would race around that corner going way too fast. And I could, I mean, I could imagine, and, and her mom could also imagine her getting run over. And that was the last thing we wanted to happen. And so it angered us when she disobeyed us and went out in the street. She got her butt paddled a few thousand times. Okay? We didn't do that. That anger was an expression of our intense love for her. Every parent knows that. Every parent understands that. And um, I like what Rebecca Rebecca Pippard said. It is never loving to let someone... No, she said this. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer which is eating out the insides of the human race. He loves with his whole being. See, when you lessen... So if you, you take hell out of the equation. When you lessen the penalty for a wrong, you lessen the seriousness of the wrong and you lessen the value of the person wronged. I mean, that's why many of us, when we watch, you know, some, you know, some show or program or news report that talks about how someone is sent up for murder in a foreign third world country and they only have to serve six or seven years and they'll be out, it's appalling I mean, if stuff like that happened in this country, we would be outraged. You you, you murdered a bunch of folks, and you're going to be out walking the streets in seven years? That's crazy. So when you lessen the penalty for a wrong, you lessen the seriousness of the wrong, and you lessen the value of the person wronged. So a, a sin against an infinite being is an infinite sin and therefore has, an, has infinite consequences. In fact, sin against God is treason. It's trampling on the love and the wisdom of God. So it makes sense to me that he would say, okay, okay, have it your way. Do it on your own. If you don't want to hang out with me, be, part, be a part of what I have for you, have at it. See, by by denying hell's reality, you demean God's holiness and justice and lower the stakes of redemption, minimizing Christ's work on the cross. And I've heard people say this, and maybe you have, and here's how you want to respond. I don't don't believe in an angry hellfire God. Ask them this. Here's, Here's how you want to refute that. Ask them this. So let me ask you about your God that is not angry or hellfire. What did it cost your God to love you? What did your God endure to get you into his life? See, at best, it's sentimentality, his love for you. See, you have no idea what Christ has done for you and how much he loves you until you understand the doctrine of hell. And that takes us to the third, the third point here. And so you've got... Uh, understand, so hell is a necessary doctrine to understand our desperate need for God and then to overcome resentment, revenge, and live at peace with others and then how much Jesus loves us and did for us. Um, fear of hell is a way of using God as a means to an end. So, so in no way am I wanting to fear you out of hell. 
you know, or I don't want you to be, you know, in the sense that that would be your motivation. Um, and, and you'll notice that Abraham, how he responds to, to the rich man, because the rich man is saying, hey, well, if someone was raised from the dead, you know, I mean, it sounds kind of crazy, but, uh, you know, maybe you've buried someone here in the last couple of years. Imagine them showing up to your house tomorrow morning and knocking on the door. I mean, that would freak you out, wouldn't it? It's like, whoa, what, is, what are you doing? We thought you were dead. We did a funeral. We did everything. And, and that's the, kind of the idea that he's talking. If someone would come from the dead, certainly, certainly that would, that would freak them out and they would be fearful and, and then they would respond to that appropriately. And it's almost like uh, Abraham is saying, no, no, that's not the appropriate motivation. They have what should motivate them. They have the, they have the Old Testament. They have the Scriptures. They have enough information. In other words, fear... Fear does not change the fundamental structure of the human heart. Fear motivation is gun to your head. If I have to hold a gun to your head to get you to do what I want you to do, that's not much of a relationship, is it? See, that's fear of hell kind of motivation. And, and what he's saying is that that's, that's actually, you haven't, you haven't changed the fundamental structure of the human heart. You've only harnessed it and redirected it. You're still self-centered. The only reason why you don't, you know, you're going to now serve God is you don't, you want to stay out of hell. That's all about you. It's self-centeredness. What is it that changes the fundamental structure of our heart, which is self-centeredness? It's God's love that transforms the fundamental structure of our heart. Um, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15. Let me read that. It's just really rich. Listen to what Paul says. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. It's, it's, it's a heart smitten by the beauty and the glory of Jesus and what he's done for you. Now listen to me. He he died for you. He gave his life for you. That's crazy. Oh my goodness, that's the most amazing truth of the Christian life. That's why I'm a Christian today. It stunned me. It so stunned me that the God of all creation would come down and die for me. His passionate love for me. That is crazy love. It swept me off of my feet in love with him and to want to live for him. And that's the appropriate motivation. The greatness of salvation is measured by the awfulness of the thing we're saved from. By the way, you need to get this. You've got to understand this. Oftentimes, if, I, if, if you ask people, well, what are we saved from? If you're saved, are you saved? What are you saved from? And a lot of people say, well, we're saved from hell. We're saved from, from Satan. We're saved from ourselves. No, no, no. Listen, ultimately, you're saved. You're saved by God from God. The judgment of God. The greatest crisis you will ever face. He saved you from himself. As you see it on the cross, on the cross, Jesus, uh, God's holiness is honored. 
and his justice, but his love is also seen in, in the cross. It's, it's amazing. It's amazing. I mean, as I reflected on this this last week, the study of hell, oh my goodness, I was overwhelmed. I was humbled. I was humbled that, that I was the cause of my Savior's unimaginable suffering, but I was also, I had unbelievable wonder and gratitude that he did it willingly and lovingly for me, for you. Oh my goodness. Here's the next point on your notes. His love demonstrated on the cross where the judge was judged for us. See, Jesus' first coming, he came to bear judgment. His second coming, he's coming to bring judgment. So, so if, you didn't, if you don't allow him to, to bear your judgment for you, saving you from the wrath of God, which the Bible says God is piling up his wrath, his anger against our sinfulness because he's a holy God for all of sin and falls short of the glory of God. And yet Jesus on the cross took the wrath of God on our behalf. He's a just God, but he's a loving God. And so you have the collision in the cross of his justice and his love. In fact, Abraham hints at it right here. He says, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Hint, hint, this is Jesus giving the story. Jesus rose from the dead and it revolutionized their lives. Psalm 22, 1, which is, which is phenomenal. Talk about prophecy. And in that Psalm 20, 22, 1, it predicts crucifixion in that before crucifixion was even invented. It talks about his, his hands being pierced. In his feet, and, and it also talks about at the very beginning, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken so that we would never have to be forsaken. Second Corinthians five twenty one, he who knew no sin became sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God. If I put my faith in Jesus, I stand right, holy positionally, before the Father. I'm in right relationship with Him. It's not based on my performance. It's based on the performance of Jesus. He took all the wrath of God. And see, that's what, that's what transforms your heart. That's what begins to change your performance. See, if you're really struggling in your life, you need to get back to your justification. That you have right standing with God. That's when I started. I said all the acceptance, security, and significance that your heart longs for is found in Jesus. See, the reason why we pursue all of these things, these, these God substitutes, is because we're not finding our deepest satisfaction in God, which it's there, it's there, but, but we, we tend to have our hearts so easily led astray. But I'm inviting you back this morning. Come back to Him. Only He can satisfy your deepest longing. Only He knows how He's wired us up, and only He can meet our deepest needs. Luke twenty two forty four says that he sweated drops of blood in Gethsemane. First John two two and four ten uses that word. Remember a few weeks ago I defined it for you. Propitiation, where the wrath of God was placed upon him. Amazing. So here's the deal. Let me wrap it up with this. Let me grab a drink here. God loved you so much. 
that he was willing to go to hell for you rather than to spend all eternity without you. See, that's the gospel message. I mean, can you see that you really don't understand his love and what he's done for you until you understand hell? And, and here's the interesting thing about this life is that the best life on earth is a glimpse of heaven. The worst life on earth is a glimpse of hell. And every one of us are heading in one, one direction or the other. What is the trajectory of your life? See, as believers, this is as close to hell as we'll ever be. But if you don't know Jesus, this is as close to heaven as you'll ever be. So, so here's, here's how we'll wrap it up this morning. In essence, we could say the essence of sin is saying to God, leave me alone. The essence of hell is God saying, okay. Salvation in heaven is the antithesis of those. Listen, check this out. Here's a, it's a hymn. I want you just to reflect on what it's going to be like when you step from time into eternity as a believer in Jesus Christ. He says, face to face with Christ, my Savior, face to face, what will it be? When with rapture I behold him, Jesus Christ, who died for me. Only faintly now I see him with the darkened veil between. But a blessed day is coming when his glory shall be seen. Face to face, oh blissful moment. Face to face to see and know. Face to face with my Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who loves me so. Face to face, I shall behold him far beyond the starry sky. Face to face in all his glory, I shall see him by and by. It's based on 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve, where it says, Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. We will know as we are fully known. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's take a moment, give you an opportunity to make a confession of faith in Jesus. Maybe you've never done this ever. Boy, this would be a great time to do that. Don't you see how much he loves you? You may say, well, how do I do that? You acknowledge ABCs. You acknowledge your sin, separates you from God. B, you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for all of your sins, and then you confess him as Lord and Savior. Give your life to him. God, this has been certainly a a stirring, moving message as we've reflected on hell, but it has helped us to understand more clearly our desperate need for you. God, I know that there were those here today, and we all struggle with this, that we misplace our identity, and it it devastates us, it, it disintegrates our life, and it isolates us from you and from others, Lord. We, we want you to be at the center of our lives. God, some of us struggle with resentment and revenge because of things that have happened to us. Lord, may our hearts m- be moved to pity for those that, that don't repent and come to you. God, now we see more clearly your amazing love for us and what you've done for us. May we just revel in that throughout this next week as we, as we live our lives before your face, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me for a blessing? So here's my blessing for you this morning. It's the high priestly blessing, of course. And uh, this, is, this is how it goes. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. And be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.
peace, grace and peace in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. God bless you.